0: we're back with another episode of the sharks mtg podcast uh we got a full house this week and uh joining us all the way from san diego is our man kalyan kalyan welcome to the podcast what's been happening brother
1: hey karen no you know playing magic cards having fun enjoying the california sun so i can't complain happy to be here how are you doing
0: well, I'm, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Um, not not so, so much sun around in South Africa at the moment. I think we had our coldest week, or one of the coldest weeks, in a very long time. I think, you know, Johannesburg's been hitting temperatures of sort of minus two at night, overnight. And, you know, as a South African, that's, uh, that's awful. That's awful because we're really not built for cold. But uh, we're not here to discuss the weather. Um, let's get on to some cool magic. We've also got Anthony and Sarvesh with us uh, this week. Uh, Hey, guys. Um,
2: Anthony, you doing well, pal? Yeah, pretty well. I've really been enjoying playing the new limited format. I mean, I don't think it has as much depth as some of the other limited formats, but that's because it's kind of like a core set. And I've just been starting to play standard recently because I have an event I'm playing on Sunday and then there's the arena open next weekend. So looking forward to talking about that.
0: Cool. And I, and I think that's that's what it's all about. right? There's just so many events going on in so many different formats. And, um, you know, from your standard events that are going on to our man down in uh, Port Elizabeth, uh, Savesh and his modern adventures. Hey, Savesh, what's happening, bro?
3: Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, it's been slugging away at some modern leagues. Um, not doing particularly well the last few days, but I think we can discuss that a bit later when we get round to talking about on as the, as the... The main topic, hammer just dominating things though. So, yeah, we'll talk about some forays into modern a bit later, I guess.
0: Cool. I, I think there's only one place to start, and you know, let's be serious for a moment. And it's the banned and restricted announcement. Um, now, nah, I'm just, I'm just med- messing with you. We, we don't really care about the uh, about the commander banning. But I will say, I, I sort of was taken aback by the commander banning because I read hull breach. Has been has been banned in Commander, and I'm thinking hull breach. I mean, yeah, it's a good card, and I, I was quite fond of it in my formative years of Magic. But I, I can't understand why this good sorcery is being banned. You know, only to find out that it wasn't hull breach, but hull breacher that was banned. So yeah, quite a quite a funny anecdote from uh, from from my side. Um, yeah, you're, think... you're aging yourself a
3: bit there, though. I have
0: no idea what hull breach does.
1: <laughs> oh my God, I'm in the next oldest then because I know what it does.
0: <laughs> it's a wonderful card. It's a wonderful card that that actually would might not, not be bad too bad to play against uh, against Hammer Time to solve some of the problems there in modern actually. Um, but I think let's start let's start off with limited because you know in the last since we've last recorded uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realm came out and I think we've all played a bit of limited to varying degrees um, to varying degrees with draft or, or, or seal deck. I'm going to start with um with anthony anthony i guess to start with overall impressions of the set and the format i mean you can start on on
2: i guess on the draft side of things if you don't mind look um it's uh it's definitely a bit deeper than the conventional core sets and that is what it's supposed to replace is the core set and the cycle but it's not that much deeper it's it's certainly not as deep as the original sets usually are and so i think Probably we won't be enjoying drafting it for the next three months. Um, but right now it's a lot of fun. Uh, one of the scourges of the format on Arena is that some of the stronger players figured out quite early on that Black-Red is, is the best deck. And most of the sort of general population haven't figured that out. And so a lot of the Red and Black commons are being drafted a bit too low. And so you get these sort of crazy overpowered Red-Black decks with lots of... I mean, it's really classic Red-Black mechanics. You have sac outlets and you have active treason effects and the, the active treason effect price of loyalty, just no one drafts really. And so you get as many as you want and you get a bunch of sac outlets and most of the decks can't really beat that. Um, so I'm hoping that that's going to stabilize in the coming week. People are going to catch on and start drafting that more because I don't think the archetype is that broken if everyone is respecting it. Although I do think red and black are the strongest colors just cause they have the most depth in the format and ideally most of the time you want your deck to have at least one of those colors in it for me personally it's been red I pretty much have a sixty eight percent win rate in this format with any deck that has red in it and I think my win rate if I don't have red in it is like barely over it's like fifty two percent um so really stark contrast i i, I it's nice to see that uh, a limited uh, is actually
0: uh sort of mirroring uh, modern because, you know, red is all the rage in modern these days as well. I see Kalyan's nodding his head about your red comments. Kalyan, you want to chip in there on um, on what Anthony had to say about uh, limited?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for anybody that's invested in magic and is playing regularly, you know, they have probably be quite aware at this point that black and red are the strongest colors or let's say the Mardu colors in particular but uh yeah this steel and sack slash treasure archetype has definitely uh, proven itself to be far and away the strongest option in terms of uh what you can do in the set you know short of opening or being past multiple rares slash mythics but uh you know i played a in-person draft today with eight fairly strong to very good players and uh my experience did not mirror that of arena or best of one play at all because you know you're finding yourself in a situation where everybody that's playing knows what the good decks are knows what cards people are looking for and then suddenly they're able to put together slower mid-range decks you know something that's traditionally not been seen in this format that's overrun with curve outs and hands that have been smoothed by arena's you know algorithm so yeah we had a lot of interesting games the decks were less fleshed out lots of 23rd and 24th cards uh you know making themselves seen and yeah it was a good time but uh best of one is very different and not representative of in-pod play and even best of three play. so if you play traditional on arena i think your experience is going to be very different
0: that's that's an interesting dynamic i suppose it's something that historically one has never had to to consider you know uh this idea of best-of-one play versus uh, whatever, best-of-three or traditional, as you, as you call it, it's something that we've never had to deal with before. Um, Anthony, how, how, how does this impact, um, I guess, the way you think about Magic and the way you, you process it?
2: Look, I mean, I suppose I just see them as different games. Like, it's, you know, the best-of-one best, best of one is a different kind of competition that you have to learn for itself. Best-of-three is a different competition. Uh, in part, is even a further different one. Um, and I, I did see there was an announcement this week that Worlds is actually going to have a draft format. Um, it's going to be the new Innistrad set standard plus the new Innistrad set draft, which they're actually going to be doing at Worlds. So that actually is really exciting for me. I know most spectators don't usually like watching draft, but I'm I'm probably going to tune in pretty much for that coverage. Because watching top-level players draft inside a pod is definitely a completely different thing to, you know, best of one in Arena. absolutely and and it's it's always i mean
0: that is one of the things i always enjoyed about the the pro tour was we're watching a, 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 some pro pros draft and some pro team discovered some crazy draft archetype that no one literally almost no one in the world had, had discovered you know and i remember if you think of uh, slither blade at that pro tour uh i think it's called slither blade the one one unblockable where christian calcano and, and and that crew came up with that and they cooked the hell out of it and, and everyone sort of was like what w- help w- what's going on why am i dying to this last pick one one uncommon um cal i see you nodding in the background
1: yeah it's funny you mentioned that because the immediately the person that came to mind was christian Colcano and you know these other limited ringers who have essentially taken the time to their minds together and try and solve the format or attack it from a different angle and you know take advantage of unsuspecting people i guess in that case trying to gain value or race in a way that uh, is not feasible against an unblockable creature you know again equipping the slither blade with the honed kopesh i believe it was but uh yeah taking it back to best of one if you don't mind just uh continuing our train of thought there with uh what I had spoken about, and then what Anthony added to, uh, yeah, I mean, you're not getting to see a whole aspect of the format, right? So you you're just playing games that are mostly curve outs, very swingy, and potentially decided by a rare or mythic that typically you'd be able to address in sideboarded games. So you're not getting a chance to interact via, you know, plummets, uh, traditional hiding up to blockers or slimming down your curve having access to counter spells or even in this set you have uh, enters the battlefield effect creatures like the barbarian that either makes a treasure or destroys an artifact so you know if you're paired against somebody with lots of equipment you'd want that you know typically you're playing that main deck but stuff like the beholder or the little cleric that destroy enchantments those you know t- you would want to access to those against somebody that has like a class card that's a rare or a mythic. So you're not really getting that back and forth, the really kind of metagaming within matches. It's a bit of a shame because that's how magic should be played in my opinion. It's what makes it interesting having to solve a puzzle and not kind of bashing your head against the wall, just trying to curve out every game.
0: Yeah, and I think so. some people might argue that um... You know, sideboarding is one of the most difficult skill sets in Magic, and particularly in Limited, where, as you say, you can fundamentally, you know, change your deck, um, what your deck's trying to do, you know, and, and switch from a, a you know a midrange to an almost an aggro deck if you if you want, and, and these sort of things. So, yeah, I, 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 your point's taken, and I think it's it's uh, something that I also uh, quite don't, don't enjoy about the about that format, um, but. I guess we're lucky that there's a best of three still available on on both arena and on good old Magic Online, so we won't be short of that. I mean, apart from apart from red black, which we've established as one of the best decks in the format, or the best deck when people aren't in the know, this is not dissimilar to other, funny enough, core sets over the years. And if I can think back, there's been several core sets where this red black archetype was the thing to do uh, you know and usually finishing it off with lava axe at the top of the curve Um, what else are you guys looking out for in in um, in adventures limited if if you can't get your red
2: black sacrifice deck what's your next go-to anthony i mean if i can't get my red black sacrifice deck i'm still going to try and draft some other kind of red aggressive deck with as many hobgoblin captains as i can get um it's I'm I'm always reluctant to not be in some kind of red, art deck. Um, it, obviously, it depends on what I open. So sometimes, you know, you just open a bomb that's re- unfortunately blue or green, and then you just try and see if you can go in that direction. Um, but outside of early bombs, I slant extremely hard to red, honestly. And I wasn't exaggerating when I said my I have a very good win rate with red decks, and I have a... <clears throat> really really mediocre win rate when i'm not playing red um and maybe that's because uh in addition to the format being quite covert i'm sort of a preferentially aggressive player historically anyway i like to be aggressive and those are the decks that make this make the most sense to play aggressively in this format um but yeah i was looking at i don't know if any of you guys have checked out 17 lands it's a relatively new site that collects data on uh limited um it's slightly flawed in the sense that you have to volunteer your data. So it's like not pulling from the whole game. It's pulling from the people who have, but they've got, you know, at this point, thousands of people volunteering data. And you can see cool stats like opening hand, win rates or, uh, win rates. If you drew the card or, and if you look at the opening hand, win rate for the commons in this format, um, I think the top 10 are uh, five red cards, four black cards and one white card. Uh, any guesses from anyone which which white common is, is up there? It's uh, the 2-mana two 2-2 two, two lifelink, I bet. Yes, that's ex- that's exactly what it is, which is probably the best it's ever been. I mean, 2-mana two 2-2 two, two lifelink in most limited formats has been quite good, but in, in this format it's probably the best that it's it's been in a while. No, it's tough, though, because you know there's another archetype that really wants
1: that card, and it's really enabling it, and that's the green-white archetype, right? So unfortunately, they're having to contend with the red white player that's just pretty much taking any two drop, and this being the best two drop in white, and you know, up there, probably second best after Hobgoblin Captain in terms of commons. Now they're not getting their enablers, so you almost get trapped by choosing to go green white, which is such a shame because it's a highly dependent on synergy that archetype. And if you don't get your enablers, your payoffs do nothing. You're actually costing yourself in a way, <laughs> they're not, not paying you off, they're
2: having you lose. Yeah, I, th- I think the green-white life-gain deck is probably the biggest trap you can fall into in this format. Like, where I have had success as green-white, it's been just sort of green-white good cards and bombs. Like, when you try and force the the life-gain synergy, it's so easy to get burned for exactly the reasons Kull uh, is just saying, that there's too many cards in the deck that just fit. in. I mean, not just the Steadfast Paladin, also the... Is it a Priest? The 3-mana the 2-1 that you gain life and draw card? Like, that's also just pretty good in any deck that plays white, so... Um, there's too many of the key cards in the life gain deck work in other decks, and so it's really, really unlikely that you'll assemble a full life gain deck in this format. Uh, it's it's it's
0: interesting hearing your your perspectives and takes on things because my my experience was limited to um, seal deck, and I, I've just done I did I think about five seal decks, and I think I said to I was saying to maybe to all of you that. I thought that this sealed deck format was probably the most aggressive sealed uh, format that I can remember since Innistrad, uh, when we had plated geopedes and I think it's Innistrad, in, yeah, geopedes and uh, vampire lacerators and and, and that's uh, the the first Zendikar. Oh, is that Zendikar? Sorry, so it's Zendikar, it's Zendikar, yeah. And I, I, I really felt that way, and it, part of the reason was, was these red red uh, commons uh, like the hobgoblin captain. Uh, the mythic, the mythic uncommon uh, goblin that 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 is a one-man army. Um, you know, uh, my experience is quite similar. That red-black, okay, okay, it wasn't sacrificed, but the red-black aggressive decks in particular were could be nuts, and, and often it, it just a just an absolute race, and you're running people over in the first few turns of the game, and it, you know your opponent um, wouldn't get chance to get there bombs on board or whatever to to stabilize. So if you could pull that off, it was quite an interesting or, or quite a powerful um, sort of deck. Um, Savish, have you you've played a played a bit of uh, adventures in the Forgotten Realm as well? How, how has your experience been with the format?
3: Uh, yeah, obviously not as much as as Ant or even yourself or Cal have played. Um, I've been sticking to more of the constructed formats, and by constructed formats, I mean just modern. Really, I don't think um, I've actually played standard in three, four months at this point. Um, hopefully that'll change soon. But I've done about two or three drops in Adventures of the Garden Realms. Um, so I definitely can't speak you know as, as deeply uh, or as, you know, extensively about the format as you guys can. But in my experience, yeah, Red Black has been pretty fantastic. I think the first two drops I did, I 0 uh, would pretty easily with a Red Black sort of treasure-based deck. And um, obviously, you know everything you guys have said about the format up until now, um, is not something I've fully experienced, um, but I wouldn't think just on face value that a two-two lifelinker is the best common in white. I don't know if you can maybe expand on why that is exactly. Uh, if you haven't really, you know, maybe you can enlighten me as to why. I mean, look, just looking at the card list, I mean, it looks like, you know, even you know, granted, there may be it may be a key piece in some, you know, multiple different archetypes, but. Why? Why is that? Why is the two-two life linker so good? Why is the format so aggressive, um, given the complexity and some of the you know power level at some of the you know the higher end cards, the the uncommons, the the rares, the mythics? You know why? Why are these strategies uh-huh. hinging on these cheap aggressive creatures to such an extent?
1: So I can give you the perfect answer to that. So if we look at the card Hub Goblin Captain that Anthony alluded to earlier, so that's a two mana three mm-hmm. one. That when you attack with six or more power worth of creatures, it gets first strike. So, if you look at what Blue's playing with, or what's trying Blue's trying to play the game with, one of, in my opinion, their best commons is a card called Degenie genie Windseer. So, that's a four mana, three, three flyer with traditionally on rate is very good, right? And you also get an ETB mm-hmm. effect where you roll, and depending on how well you roll, you either scry one, two, or three. So now if you're in a position where your four drop is having to trade with a, with a three, one in order for you to stay afloat, you could see how the game is going downhill for you. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So no, that makes sense in terms of other...
1: why the format is slanting in the way it is. I think that's like a perfect example. And then going back to your question about, I don't, I think I would say that two two linker is the best white common. So, just to get the name right it's steadfast paladin and yeah again why because two toughness versus one toughness really matters you have the goblin that you uh, create from the dungeon that can block stuff like preach priest of ancient law which is another card we referred to earlier that's the three cmc two one that ETBs to gain a life and draw a card in white uh yeah so the toughness matters you can put equipment on it suddenly you're racing and yeah, it also overlaps by being an enabler for green-white, and it's just a card that all white decks want, whether you're trying to be controlling, which isn't really a thing, or curve out, or be a mid-range deck that uh, cares about venturing into the dungeon. It's just a very good card that basically
2: covers all bases. Yeah, and, yeah I mean, I, yeah, I guess can... just to... to... Just just to just to add to that, also, it's because the set is kind of the replacement core set, it does function a lot like our core sets do. It's mostly on the fundamentals. The set mechanics are not that defining. And in these kind of environments, one of the fundamentals that usually plays a big part in limited is uh, the importance of two drops. Um, in a format where there are a lot of important aggressive two drops, having a two-drop which has lifelink is really important because there's so many creatures in this format which like have some kind of uh, trigger when they hit the player's face, and so there's so many reasons why you want to be able to race well or trade well. And steadfast Paladin does both of those; it can race well and it can trade well, and so it's just naturally well well positioned, I think. No, those all good points. Yeah. And uh, sorry, Cameron, I can guess. I just
3: say something? Um, sure,
0: go for it. Uh,
3: sorry, man, uh, but yeah, just uh, taking. Or well, going back to your your earlier point about red and black, uh, the red black archetype potentially being overlooked um, on arena. Um, obviously, that hasn't really mirrored Kel's experience, as you mentioned. But um, you know, it seems like a no brainer to me. You have you know very cheap, efficient, common removal. You know, at, I think it's Grim Bounty, which is the four mana, you know, sorcery in black, destroy creature, make make a treasure, and Dragon's Fire as well. You know, your your typical two mana deal three, uh, which can even scale up. You know, depending on on you know whether or not you have access to to dragon. So you know, it wouldn't seem on face value that that kind of stuff would be overlooked, you know. Um, so maybe I just don't have enough experience, I haven't played enough in the arena queues to really get a feel for the format, but it uh, wouldn't be my first instinct to pass those cards. So I don't know if you have any insight as to why that might be taking place. You know, what are people prioritizing over these ostensibly extremely good limited cards? You know, what, what is appealing elsewhere?
2: I mean, one of the things that I think chap people is that uh, there are people going for the dice rolling uh, deck, which is really not a very good deck. Um, but more generally, I think I, I want to be clear that like, it's not that people aren't drafting red-black, and red-black in this set is fundamentally a treasure-based archetype, and people draft red-black treasures. What they're not drafting is Price of Loyalty and, and uh, Sepulcher Goal and Shambling Ghast, the really powerful red-black commons that fit very well when you're abusing the sap mechanic. Um, so you can like get a deck where you have like four or five copies of Price of Loyalty. It's ridiculous. And and I mean, look, there's some limited formats where the, where the active treason card is really not that good. And it's supposed to not be picked very highly, but in this format, it, it, it just, what everyone's trying to do, you know, curve out and be a sort of creature based proactive deck just gets completely destroyed by stealing their thing and sacking it. Um, and so adding that synergy on top of the already quite competent red black treasure deck is what makes it too strong. And I think that people aren't really seeing that deep because it doesn't present its, its, itself to you as obviously as, you know, red black being the uh, treasures being the mechanic for red black as opposed to sacrifice, which is sort of a, a, a thing that transcends sets at this point for red black.
0: I think just to close up on, on, on limited uh, before we head to Carl, um, I think, you know, just to your question around the white card. I think if you bring it back to, take a step back and take it down to Constructed, at the end of the day, a, a white uh, lifelinky creature, Paladinon Vec or whatever whatever you want to call it, will, that style of creature always beats up on like red and black decks. And in a sense, this is almost the constructed version, the, the limited version of the white hate bear, if you will, that lifelinking little dude is the the, the hate bear and the, the answer to these you know historically to this archetype uh cal let's finish off unlimited with you last thoughts
1: yeah i just want to kind of come at it this whole rigged back issue from a different angle and maybe propose some ways to fight it you know just to offer something different that maybe not other people are not talking about so obviously having played a lot myself and played against it often in the form of mirrors there's a couple of things that i've noticed so uh, the card Anthony mentioned before, Shambling Ghast, is one that's, uh, I think, undervalued and very important for the deck. So you want to get the ball rolling. And the way you really get the best builds of this deck is when you have uh, many copies of Deadly Dispute. So that's the, essentially like a divination. So it's a two mana card where you sacrifice either an artifact or a creature as an additional cost, and it draws two cards and creates a treasure. So if you have the Ghoul in play, it's really giving you so many options. So on the one hand, you can, like I said, get the ball rolling, sacrifice it, it's giving you a treasure. Now you have two treasures in play, you can, you know, even play your four drop on turn, sorry, your five drop on turn three. So something like, um, what's the name of the card, swarming goblins, you know, excellent card that stabilizes and is also aggressive. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you get three or four copies of deadly Dispute, suddenly you're control deck or your controlling deck can play 15 lands. So now you're getting to do to have your cake and eat it too. You know, it's ridiculous. But I think the best ways of dealing with this deck is to kill Shambling Ghoul. Oh, sorry, Sepulcher Ghoul. Uh, So that's the. The card that's sacrificing your stolen creature through price of loyalty. Um, Slow roll your stronger creatures. So stuff that your opponent's going to get max value from. So for example, I've had the pleasure of stealing Ochre Jelly, which is that ooze card that kind of splits once it dies. I've stolen that twice now and then had it split for me and <laughs> being able to keep the remnants of that as well as uh, Westgate Regent, the big vampire. Those are some of the, probably the worst fuel bads of having cards stolen or bombs stolen. So you want to uh, get rid of their enabler, kill the ghoul slow roll your strong stuff so that they steal your mediocre stuff first and then run out of threatens and yeah try and have some sort of grinding element to your deck because the games are going to slow down against correctly build built red black decks with speed bumps such as you know multiple sepulcher ghouls um the little ghast and then stuff like hired hexblade which is trading off for of value by being a two two and also drawing you a card off of your excess treasure so, those would be uh, my recommendations against red black
0: Cool. so we've we've uh, got a bonus here. we've we've told you how to drop the best deck in the format. We've also told you how to play against the best deck in the format. What else do you need? Um I think, On that note, Kalyan was talking about regents, uh, 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 a regent, Westpac regent. Let's talk about Merktide regent and friends as we move into the wonderful format that is modern. Um, I can see a very big smile on Savesh's face, probably because he's been enjoying modern as much as I have of late. Savesh, what's happening on the MTGO streets of modern? Can you tell us about your adventures?
3: uh yeah sure well my adventure is definitely don't take my advice i haven't been doing too well the last few days i've been trying a few different variations of the you know uh, as food decks which are probably a bit better off these days than they have been in previous weeks um but i think the thing that's on everyone's lips at the moment is hammer time um which has just been dominating the the magic online leagues um you know the trophy leader at the moment is uh Noted hammer time player. I can't remember his name at the moment, um, but you know, there's several of them. You know, sitting at the top of the top of the list there, um, that have Andy been cleaning awkward. up. The I don't know his real name. I know his MTGO handle is Joe Andrade. I think. Oh i'm not sure you pronounce that yeah i think I think that's him yeah but uh,
0: it's it's been it's been it's been going between them like there's been a few people that have depending on the week uh but yeah like andy yeah. was there with the, and there was um there was hayashi was there which we'll get into later with these crazy stuff but yeah oh uh, yeah yeah uh but uh i've just been trying
3: my hand at various different things to try and combat you know, hammer, because it's been the scourge of the leagues, um, as far as I'm concerned, and I haven't been doing too well. The one deck that I did have some success with was uh, sort of a Jeskai deck, uh, not quite the same as the Jeskai deck that Gabriel Nassif won the one of the modern challenges last weekend with, but pretty similar. I was main decking four copies of Chalice of the Void, which uh, is probably as good now as it's ever been um, against these you know decks that rely pretty heavily on zero and one drops, you know, including the free cascade spells. And then your, your decks like like Hammer Time. Um, and then just a bunch of removal. Although playing main deck chalices means you are, you know, casting yourself the ability to play Lightning Bolt, Path to Exile, you know, some of the cheaper removal. So you're relying on things like Lightning Helix. Prismatic Ending, luckily, is something that can get around a chalice. You know, even if you're casting it for one color, you know, you can, you can drop multiple pips worth of mana into it to sort of get around that casting restriction. Um, but uh, it, it was okay. You know, I 4 one a couple of leagues. But um, then. People started adapting to the chalices that were popping up a bit more. You know, we're able to beat that, a bit more effectively, the hammer deck itself. You know, can play things like uh, seal of cleansing, which it does quite frequently, and in, being a lures deck means it can it can recur that. You know, so it's getting multiple repeated value out of these cards. Um, Wraith is obviously obviously very very good against that that kind of approach, and prismatic ending as well can answer a chalice of the void on the opposite side of the table just as easily um, as it can get around you know uh, on your side as well. So. And I think Control just isn't particularly well positioned at the moment, you know, other than preying on specific gaps in the metagame. I mean, Gabriel Nassif is obviously an anomaly. Uh, he can win with pretty much anything you put in his hands. So I don't think anyone should try and uh, emulate what he does on a regular basis. Um, and then I moved on to Amulet Titan, which was a favorite deck of mine a few years ago. And even last year, you know, with uh, Once Upon a Time and Field of the Dead being printed, it uh, was, was you know, a pretty easy thing to pick up again and play. Um That being said, Amulet at the moment isn't as well positioned as it was maybe two, three weeks ago when Modern Horizons 2 first came out and Urza Saga was, was revealed or hit the streets. Uh Amulet was probably initially the best Saga deck uh, until the Hammer deck started rising to prominence. So now I think I Amulet's mean, not as good as Hammer is. It's not as quick. Your clock is probably a turn or two slower at best. Um I was killed several times yesterday on turn two by the Hammer deck, uh, which is ridiculous. They had three copies of Colossus Hammer, even getting around a Force of Vigour from me. So, you know, they're pretty robust to being able to kill people on turn two or turn three through removal these days. But the Amulet deck is also getting a lot of incidental hate. You know, a copy of Weiteh destroying an Urza Saga and an Amulet on on turn one or turn two is pretty backbreaking, you know, and you really struggle to recover from that kind of thing. And all of the hate that's targeted against the Hammer decks hit those cards and also your things like Dryad of the Elysian Grove as well. Um, so that's, that's been quite annoying. Uh, there's been some variation in some of the lists, I see Cal um, wanted to say something now, but he also mentioned uh, earlier that one of the guys, uh, I think he said a French player, Lyserg, or Lyserg, I'm not sure how he pronounced that, um, has been playing more copies of Sun Home in the Legion, uh, Sun Home of the Legion in the deck, uh, which in recent months has sort of fallen away, but has now come back, just because um, you know, there are control decks that have popped up to try and prey on the you know, more aggressive decks, So you need to try and end the game as quickly as possible um, and also get around all of these incidental small creatures and chump blockers that you you find, you know, littering battlefields these days. So sometimes quite important in just, you know, presenting a faster clock uh, and not letting the game drag on too long because things like hammer can kill you much further down the line. You know, it's got an ability to grind, um, which is, you know, sort of unprecedented in these decks that you would think of normally as like glass cannon creature combo decks that go all in. Uh, even if you manage to disrupt their combo early on, they can still kill you much later on um, with things like Lorus and you know other card advantage engines that they've got. So I think double strike is pretty important at the moment. Uh, but you know there's also decks that are playing abundant harvest in multiple copies. Some decks that are not going that route and playing more lands instead. There's a deck that also firebird recently that's playing three copies of Frog Hemoth from the new set, which is something I didn't ever expect to see in modern. But you know just another you know very Easily accessible, you know, cheap threat that does quite a lot of damage is also um, able to target, you know, some of the graveyard strategies uh, that are popping up at the moment. So you know, there's a lot of churn in modern. Um, and if you look at the the challenges from the last weekend, Hammer didn't actually put a copy in the top eight of both the challenges from the previous weekend. So while it's represented very well in the leagues, it's not really showing up in the winners' meta game, if you can put it that way. You know, there you see things like these control decks more combo centric decks trying to pop up like there's a scapeshift deck that um uh you know placed in one of the top eight lists or one of the top eights um which is also playing chalice of the void you know multiple copies of prismatic ending as well to try and combat these decks and then you've got things like living end and crashing footfalls which are also showing up also you know with, with very targeted you know hate cards in their sideboard and main deck for these kinds of things so hammer time is great it's probably still the best deck in modern i think but um if there's just anything to go by, it looks like you can actually, if you want to, beat it quite easily. And Karan has also had a lot of success beating Hammer by the looks of things, so I don't know if he wants to take us through, you know, what he's. doing. Uh, no, I think, on.
0: yeah, I, I can jump in on that. I think, Kyle, you wanted to interject on uh, on uh, on uh, Titan in particular? or.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about it. Um, why did you go back to it this week, Savish? Why were you interested to? Because I like the deck as well, and I think it's very powerful, but I definitely see a couple of issues with it, particularly against Blue Red with uh, uh, the... Un- is it Unholy Heat? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. yeah the six drop answered yeah. by one mana spell that's like incidental and should be dead against you is- Pretty yep. big problem, that in combination with straight-up Counterspell, right? So, just curious yep. why yep. you decided to go back to Titan. Not as a criticism, but obviously you're doing it for a reason, so I'm
3: curious. Yeah, I mean, I was just trying out various things that might be able to combat it. So, the the rise of these control decks, you know, um, you're able to play things like Cabinet Souls. You know, something that's tutorable, something that you can potentially use to get around that uh, particular aspect of the metagame. Um and control has historically been a pretty good matchup for the Titan decks. Um, in my experience at least. Um, just because you have that ability to sort of sidestep, you know, their their main way of interacting with you. Um and also I think you can build the sideboard in a particular way that was um potentially able to target the hammer decks and also, you know, other other features of the metagame. So I think playing being able to play four copies of Force of Vigor, you know. Um Endurance as well is something that you could also um, slot into the sideboard pretty easily. Um, doesn't really go along with your main game plan, but it is something that you do have access to. You it's tutorable through summoners pact, um, and can actually shut down not the hammer decks essentially, but some of the other graveyard based decks. You know the, the dragons red chandler decks, the Morgoth Regent decks, um, and living end as well. You know, so I, I thought that was something. You know. Just to try out you know and it seemed in theory to be something that would be quite good didn't end up working out as well and also like you mentioned the six drop being answered by a one mana spell obviously that's completely ridiculous but i played against yesterday in a league two very different food decks to what i played against or played with previously so instead of the traditional demi or is it food decks these were a teamer and a sort of a Salty variant um, the teamer deck playing you know gilded goose uh, ren and six and obviously, your classic food cards, Asmor, Underworld Cookbook, you know, uh, things in those veins, Urza as well, Thought Monitors, and the Saltar deck, praying pretty much the same thing, just, you know, splashing uh, black for, for different removal, um, or splashing, yeah, blue and black for different removal spells. Uh, but also just Asmore being able to mow down Titans. There was a turn that um, I was able to, I had four amulets in play at this point after resolving a bunch of Urza sagas, and, you know, the game had gone on quite, quite long. And I played a Titan, tuned it up, you know, Teleria West, bounced it. Cheered up a summoner's pact played another t- i think i played four titans that turn and they all died it was absolutely ridiculous he was just able to generate enough food to keep abreast and you know sack them to to essentially destroy all my titans before i even got into combat so obviously that might be a bit of an anomaly that doesn't happen all that often but you know just the ability to answer your your threat that you've invested so much mana into so efficiently is probably going to keep titan away from the top tables for well not really tables yeah, it sounds like that was situation for a situation you... where.
1: Sounds like a situation where that was—you uh, gave them a chance to show them what they could do, and then, yeah, <laughs> yeah they did. But uh, I'm just curious, what what cuts did you make for the additional uh, cavern of souls? Because if you're playing stuff like Arboreal Grazer or even Abundant Harvest, I, I'm sure you're not playing Abundant Harvest uh, since you're playing the extra caverns. But what are you
3: cutting? Uh, so I've, I've moved the some of the lists of playing, you know, some of the more targeted uh, utility lands, main decks. So I've just moved the Ghost Quarter to the sideboard. I tried the Bajuka Bog in the sideboard instead of main deck for a spell. Um, yeah, I did try a variant with uh, Abundant Harvest as well. I did trim them, you know, not adding the additional land. But I've just been playing around with the different, you know, um, the numbers on the bounce lands as well. So sticking to 4 and growth chambers and then just trimming a gruel Turf and trimming a Celestia Sanctuary here. Um, so, you know, the, able to squeeze the, the extra cavern in pretty easily. There was a list that was playing uh, one valakut instead of just the two. That's pretty stock at this point, but I think that's probably a mistake. I think you want, you know, two copies of that card at all times because even though you're not playing, if, if you're not playing the, or you know, in position where you're not able to resolve Titan or you don't have access to a Titan, uh, just, you know, the ability to play a Dryad and have multiple land drops in a turn, you know, to mow down smaller creatures or actually apply pressure and deal, deal damage straight to the face, uh, having multiple Valiket there is quite important.
1: I also think that uh, playing Abundant Harvest right now is a little bit of a liability against the Ragavan decks because typically they're not really able to leverage your cards and they're really counting on the treasure as a means of acceleration but now if you're playing something like Abundant Harvest it's like a good cantrip that you're giving them access to as well potentially so that's pretty funny but yeah thanks for sharing see uh, Anthony has been wanting to Uh say something for some time
2: yeah, <clears throat> I just thought, uh, Savesh, the viewers would like to know if uh, control is coming back. Is now a good time to be playing borgles? Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me. Can we just put this to
3: rest? It's never a good time to play Bogles. <laughs> no, no, there's a time and a place. It sort of comes around once every. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many. You know, there's certain planets have to align. For Bogles to actually be a good choice in modern, but uh, no, not with uh, chalice of the void uh, and explosives, internet explosives, uh, you know, showing up in the numbers that they are. I think it's best to stay away from Bogles. You know, as much as you might beat the odd control player, I think you're gonna you're gonna be embarrassed more often than not. Get Octigue, baby! Come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I think my trap card. I also think like, you know, every sideboard that I t- typically build, I find in modern has at least two engineered explosives in it, at least, and, and it's usually three. So yeah, not not the time,
2: <laughs> not the time for bogles, for Andrea, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, ex- you know what, explosives we can sometimes beat, but chalice is like pretty much unbeatable. So if chalices are out there in people's main boards, then, then I, I'll wait, I'll wait for my time.
3: Uh, one of the other things I just wanted to point out, um, if you look at the the metagame decks or so the top eight decks from the Challengers, um, I mentioned a scapeshift deck just uh, a while ago, but, um, you know, it's playing things you would typically expect, you know, playing Explores, it's playing, you know, three main deck copies of Chalice of the Void, which is not typical of these lists, but obviously something that's very good at the moment. Um, and, you know, this is a uh, bring to light ship variant as well but the interesting thing is that it's also playing a copy of valky which i think is also a very good thing to be doing at the moment um and being able to to play uh you know chalices but then and all these other control aspects and then still being able to resolve you know probably one of the most powerful planeswalkers we've seen in modern in recent times obviously it was pretty broken when we had you know we're able to cascade into it but um you know it's a pretty good way to attack the format now is just go over the top of everything else that's happening you know if you're able to so keep your, your head above water for for a few key turns. And then um, there's a Mardu deck that showed up as well in one of the challenge lists, uh, or challenge drops. Um, I think also top eighted um, one of the days, which was quite cool. It's a Luris deck, and then it's playing. Is it a Luris deck? No, this wasn't the Luris deck. Sorry. Maybe it is. Let me just have a look at the list quickly. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, It was playing a copy of Luris, but also um you know playing typical Mardu things lots of hand attack you know lightning bolts prismatic endings on holy eats terminates and then an interesting 2-2 split of kai's guile coligan's command in the main deck and then another two of each in the sideboard um so i think that's also quite an important removal spell but it felt to me when i was playing against hammer specifically a couple of times last week that Colligan's command just didn't get the job done uh, unless you had something you know proactive to do and were able to close the game out you know like i mentioned earlier they can grind pretty heavily but, um, you know, this is also playing four copies of Dragons, Rage Ragavans, Raghavans, Void Voidwalkers, and Croxes. So you're able to apply a significant amount of pressure as well. And then you can probably finish the game off with bolts and incidental damage from your other burn spells, um, which I found quite cool. And um, the other thing that also interested me was um, Jund showing up in a top eight of one of the modern challenges. And this isn't your... Your daddy's or your grandfather's jund this is new 2021 jund you know it's playing raghavan it's playing obviously your stock goyfs and of the void uh, of the veil vale, but also ren and six grists showing up in a couple of spots um so i found that quite interesting i didn't expect jund to show up but the thing out of the sideboard that interests me about jund is something that i actually lost to with playing titan yesterday um is necromancia which is you know one black black uh you know choose a card name basically you get a cranial extract it from your opponent's deck and then they make a 2-2 zombie for every copy that you take from their hand but able to play that on turn two against a deck that relies you know on very key combo pieces um or, you know playing a turn two off of a raghavan is something that's quite good i uh, wouldn't think on face value that that would be a good card and would ever see modern play occasionally they do pop up usually in sort of a surgical extraction kind of form which is much cheaper and you don't really see the three mana variants making it into the format but um you know i think it, it cleans up a lot of the Problems that Jun has with some of the matchups, typically. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting aspect. Um, and yeah, uh, oh. yeah, like I said, Jun typically wasn't a very or a deck that I would expect to lose to from the Amulet side. You know, historically, it's been a pretty good matchup for Amulets. Um, especially when Field of the Dead was around. So it's interesting now to see that the table sort of turned and the pendulum swung in John's favor, at least for the time being. You know, Maybe Amulets or some of the other combo decks will find a way to adapt.
2: Um, I, I just wanted to ask, uh, for those of you playing a lot of modern, is the Mill deck still around? I was thinking Tasha's Hideous Laughter could, like, one-shot kill this uh, Hammer Time deck sometimes, because they have so many zero mana cards. Yeah, it's
0: it's very much around and it's a very good deck um it um tasha's hideous laughter is a yeah it's it's an incredible card against these luris decks in particular where you're often they're getting rid of between 25 to 30 32, 35 cards depending you know on 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 the roll of the dice so to speak um and in fact when I was playing some of the leagues that I played on earlier on um, where I was playing the Jun style, style shadow decks uh, and, and, and um, Loris and with Loris in them, I lost. I kept on losing to Mull because that's what would happen. Opponent would go Tasha's Hideous Laughter, Mill you for 30 cards, um, and you know, basically uh, you, the game's pretty much over. One more Mull, one more Mull card here or there, and and it's done. So yeah, that's what I think. That is one of the ways to attack Hammer Time, and probably one of the very few decks. Um, that are okay against, the, that's okay against the field, but also happens to have a very good Hammer Time match because um, maybe we can move into some of the things that I've been uh, trying out and I've tried out a variety of different strategies, but um, I haven't found a deck that beats Hammer Time. Um, I found decks that maybe like a 45-50% matchup at, at best, but I can't confidently tell you that any of the uh, any of the decks I've tried have actually just beat Hammer Time, um, and I think the exception being uh, Blue Black Mill because of things like Tasha's Hideous Laughter um, in the car in in the deck, and and your ability to interact with their one or two, um, you know, their, their their threat on a key turn because of things like Fatal Push uh, to stay in the game. So, yeah, very interesting. I think you know, two weeks ago we asked the question. Anthony was asking the question: Is Hammer Time real? It's very real. And it's very, very good. And um I don't know how to beat it. And I'm not sure if many people do know how to beat it. Because I've seen these discussions on Twitter. The deck attacks you from so many different angles. It's got incredible card advantage in the form of Esper Sentinel, Stoneforge Mystic, uh, Mystics, uh, Pure Steel Paladin, um Lurus. You know, just inevitability. It's got a Saga providing massive free threats. It... You know, a man lands in Inkpart Nexus. It just feels like it's got too many things to deal with. And what I've discovered uh, with the various decks, and whenever I tend to beat it, is I need to present or you need to present a clock really quickly, get a clock down, and you need a you know several answers to go through it. So you were, we're talking about Culligan's command. You need a Colligan's command, and you need maybe a Kozleks return and or a Shattering Spree or something of that sort. So that's what it almost takes, a combination of hammers or hate pieces, if you will, to stop that deck in combination with a a turn to Goyf or a turn to uh, Merktad Regent. It's a very, very good deck and very resilient. Um, Cal?
1: Yeah, I think this is the perfect moment to transition to the the Gruul deck you've been brewing with. So immediately the cards that come to mind when you're talking about... uh, ways to you know punish or take advantage of the nature of hammer times creatures or the deck itself is you know Renin-6 and six uh, and this curious card called fury has anybody ever heard of this card what is that
0: <laughs> yeah um I, that's a that's a good question i i think um you know when this mh2 was spoiled everyone was all the rage about um about grief in particular, and um, probably lost on the list of priorities in the cycle was uh, Fury. Um, I, I, I started playing, I guess, evolving from the blue-red deck, the classic blue-red murktide region deck, and I started thinking that the format needs, as I said, if you want to beat a lot of these decks in the format, you need to present threats that they can't kill. And to me, a threat that can't be killed is a seven toughness creature and more to get around Unholy Heat. So a big Tarmogoyf and a big Mugtad region. So I thought the star- natural starting point, let's add green to the blue-red deck. We'll throw in Goyfs. And then, hey, while we're at it, actually, Ren Six is an amazing card. It gets rid of uh, DRCs and, um, and, and obviously, if they don't have Delirium, as well as it takes, handles, Ragavans. So I added that in. So that was my starting point of a deck. I think I did a league with it. I think I went 3-2. I felt that like my first draft was quite rough, and I felt like it could be improved. Somehow, I thought um, I was inspired by the, the madman that's uh, Hayashi on, on NTGO, a user by the name of Hayashi. And Cal and I always talk about this guy because he's got it. He just 5-0s. He was trophy lead at one and He 5-0s repeatedly with mono-red Obash. And, I mean, he's playing Hammer of Bogarden in the year 2021. I mean, to put it in perspective, Hammer of Bogarden was a card that I, like, qualified for my first ever Nationals with in the early 2000s, you know, in my, like, mono-red prison deck back then. And, like, most people would tell you that today it's an unplayable magic card. It's a three-mana deal three damage. It's not, not a great rate, let's be honest, when you've got lightning bolts and, you know, punishing fires at one mana dealing tons of damage. But anyway... He had four copies of fury i tried out the list i went for one with it furies was incredible and i thought what if we could combine the goodness of my blue of the blue red deck with fury and tomogoy and, and what, what, what would happen there so took that through a league um went well it went for one thought let's try and refine it a little bit and then i thought huh you know what actually would work in this deck what if we threw blood moon into it so we got rid of blue altogether. We added some Blood Moons and Furies to the deck. So it gave us a way to, you know, game one to cheese off a few free wins against decks. So you can make a turn to Blood Moon off a ragavan token or Utopia Sprawl. Um, And I'm not playing bad cards like Arbor Elf. So so just all good cards. So you can make a turn to blood, Blood Moon, which just gets you free wins sometimes. But other times you play it and it's just enough to annoy your opponent or switch off their Sagas, which gives you a fighting chance. And then Fury can come in whether it's a, a free fury or a hard cast one, and just clean up the board. So yeah, the red green moon deck is, uh, or monkey moon as I called it, is, uh, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I 5-0 did it this week. Uh, and I got a couple of four ones as well. I think it's a good deck. How good? I don't know. I don't know if it's good enough to to play a deck that doesn't have Luris or doesn't have Merktat Regent. And that's something I'm grappling with. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, we will we'll help us figure out check
1: Yeah, so I just wanted to take a moment to look at that uh, abomination that is M Hayashi's red deck and kind of figure out why could something that looks so wrong feel so right and actually produce results. So it took me a moment, but you know, you said clearly there's something here, right? He's continuously 5 0 4 one so what's going on here so if you actually look at the deck he's going to play all the best cards that everybody else is playing but also essentially being a prison deck and playing a bunch of hammers and I'm not talking about hammer of bogarden but uh blood moon relic of progenitus you know stuff that's just going to lock people out completely so Karan you're telling me about how the black red deck and even blue red just like it's almost lights out against a relic particularly if you have multiples and. You know, some of these crazy people are running four main deck with the Hayashi list.
0: Yeah, 100%. You, you, those decks basically cannot win a game against a turn one relic, um, uh, particularly when it's backed up, you know, if you're backing it up with other, other weird and wonderful things like Blood Moon, because your blue red deck relies on DRC getting Delirium and gra- cards in your graveyard for uh, Merktide region. So if you shut off the graveyard, the two best threats are. are or taking out the game. And they're certainly not going to kill you with Ragavan because in Hayashi's deck, he's got four Bolt, four Searing uh Flame Slash, four Bone Crusher Giant, um, you know, Furies, and he's got Spike Field Hazard. So, you know, that X1 isn't going to win the game. So that's on the blue side of things. Similarly, on the on the on the black red deck, same things, it's got the same one drops, your Ragavans, your DRCs, which are shut off. Then you've got um Cruxer also graveyard shut shut down Colligan's command. Yes, he has to waste the, Col- the or he or she has to waste the Colligan command on your on your relic. But essentially, Relic of Progenitus shuts down those decks, and suddenly all your removal spells become Doomblades because you know you're dealing with tiny creatures. So um, it's it's kind of wild. It doesn't seem like it should work, but it, it just somehow does. So it's it's a very interesting deck that. Like, I just don't have the time. I haven't had the time to really put through the paces. I mean, I said I, I did one league with it. But something that if if you're interested in some, doing something a little bit different and enjoy a a, a prison-style control deck that's off the beaten path, uh, I'd definitely recommend.
1: Yeah, I think another key almost enabler or, like, workhorse of the deck is uh, Seasoned Pyromancer. So I'm guilty of really criticizing this card and thinking, like, wow, three mana kind of card filtering style effect that's you know generating a little bit of value later in the game when it exiles itself like how is modern about this style of card it's a complete joke in a world where you know we had a modern format a couple of years ago that was almost like a turn two turn three format and then there's people playing titans and winning games on turn three and you want to be drawing two and discarding two like what's going on here but you know, when you're presenting all these other must answer threats and potentially, uh, you know, game winning haymakers like Blood Moon, you're getting to filter out stuff that's dead in certain matchups. You know, you don't want Blood Moon against my red, for example. And since you can't pre-board your deck, Pyromancer is, you know, essentially doing that for you in games one. And uh, yeah, presenting like extra value once those games are prolonged now that you've answered a bunch of threats and yeah it helps you turn the corner it just does enough different things well to be a very strong card at the end of the day so it's starting to justify its
3: uh monetary price at this point as far as i'm concerned uh yeah well about season pyromancer you know usually when i see this cast against me in a modern league i take a huge you know uh well it's a sigh of relief generally i'm like oh they're just playing a season pyromancer like you said it's a three-mana two-two maybe brings along a buddy or two, uh, draws them one or two cards. But um, I've lost to it in those spots, you know, when I've underestimated it. You know, it just is an important role player. Um, if you think about how important Faithless Losing was to, like, so many decks a couple of years ago, you know, until it was banned in Modern, I think this is probably the next best thing in terms of that functionality, you know, being able to filter your draws and then late game having something that you can potentially, you know, play out of the graveyard. So, you know, it's a very good point and probably something that, you know, I need to look at. Playing, you know, maybe I'll pick up this red deck. Uh, although I still can't afford a set of Raghavans, or you know, I don't feel like selling anything, any of my worldly possessions, or depriving any of my dogs of food for the next few weeks to be able to afford four online cards. Um, interestingly, you know, I mentioned something about this. I think on the previous cast, the the guys on Twitter, one guy on Twitter or some people on Twitter have created something called uh, the Raghavan Index, which tells you how many digital copies of Raghavan actually are required in order for you to purchase a real-life marmoset, And I think there's like eight or nine copies now of uh, of Raghavan in order for you to obtain an actual real-life monkey. So the price of that card is just spiraling deeply out of control.
0: Yeah, but I mean, in, there has been a bit of good news and a bit of relief on, on that front. Um, Modern Horizons came back to Magic Online, um, Modern Horizons 2 draft. Uh, and limited in general came back to magic online on on wednesday and prices have plummeted so a set a full set of magic online uh, that's one of every card in the in the format has dropped by a hundred and twelve dollars so a week ago it was about four hundred and thirty dollars now it's about sorry about uh, four hundred and seventy dollars now it's about four hundred and sixty dollars three hundred and sixty dollars for a set and uh, similarly ragavan's come down significantly like like about 15% in price. So, so while it's still exorbitant and uh, still um still can purchase an actual mom set with a few copies, it's um it's still uh, heading in the right uh, direction. So with the packs being opened and continuing to be uh, opened, it will um it will continue to drop in price. Um I think moving on, I think we you know this Hayashi deck as fun and wonderful as it is, I think like there's modern has been so incredibly fun um and for me and i feel like i've tried so many different decks and different try try to brew up different ideas and some have worked some haven't worked as as they always do but one of the things that i find a little frustrating in the deck building process in modern at the moment is lurus in in the sense that the card is so powerful it is such a powerful effect it feels like you're depriving yourself, you're shooting yourself in the foot when you build a deck that doesn't have Lurus in it. So, you know, of course, being in those colors. And we're starting to see ridiculous things like people playing uh, blue-red decks or, or, or you know, uh, blue-red decks, blue-white, uh, blue-green decks and splashing uh, white or black just for Lurus because of the power, uh, the power level of the card and because mana bases obviously are a bit easier uh, to throw together in, in the modern format. Um, I think maybe starting with, uh, maybe, Savesh, maybe you want to chip in and, and, and what are your thoughts on Luris and, and a sort of format health? Because I guess on the one hand, it provides, some would argue that it provides, you know, interesting deck building decisions um, with the restriction that it gives you in terms of uh, the non-land permanents being two men or less. Um, so obviously that does restrict you, and uh, but... Does it really restrict you in a format like like Modern where you've got such efficient, powerful one and two drops anyway? Uh, I think we can all agree Companion
3: was probably a bit of a mistake, right? Obviously, in its original form, um, you know, being able to just cast Lurus out of your sideboard, you know, not requiring that intermediate step of putting it into your hand was completely ridiculous and obviously required it to be banned in, like Vintage. Um, but uh, even in its current form, you know, three mana on, you know, some other random turn to put this complete powerhouse of a card into your hand, which is going to pay you back in spades, you know, further down the line, if it's not answered immediately. Um, I don't think it's too high of a cost to pay. So I think the card is extremely overpowered. Um, definitely on par, if not better than uh, a lot of the other powerful cards we've seen in modern in recent years, you know, the sort of staples of the format, um, you know, faithless beating Opal, all those kinds of things. I think Lurus has probably uh, has defined the last year or so of modern, um, more than any other card in recent memory has. Um, you make a good point that it, it offers interesting deck building. Is that oh no, I've got to play with this three-two, you know, three mana creature. It means I can only play a certain you know, type of card, you know, certain cards in my in my main deck. But you know, yeah, like you said, modern is, is built to move with these hyper efficient, you know, very cheap cards that have this it's incredible impact on the game. Um, you know, it sort of you know, it doesn't actually pose that much restriction. Um, but you have to wonder how much interesting stuff it's been keeping out of the format over the last year i mean there are very good magic cards in modern that definitely deserve to be played um that are in the three four mana range um but i don't know what do you think needs to be done do you think that uh, you know ban action needs to be taken against loris i don't think it's 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 very powerful it's potentially oppressive i mean if you look at the, the best decks in modern so to speak over the last last while. Um, They've tended to be, you know, cheap creature combo-based decks with access to Luris in the sideboard. You know, whether it's burn, some variant of the prowess decks, um, and now with this Hammer Time deck that's risen to prominence. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they should look at taking action against it. I don't know if changing the companion rule again is something that they need to look at doing. Uh, someone recently on Twitter posted, you know, just theorized, you know, what if you had to pay three mana? I think it was Canister actually. What if you had to pay three mana to put Luris from your like external sideboard into your sideboard and then another three mana to put it into your into your hand would that fix it or would that still be too powerful you know i don't think um you have to think quite far out of the box to think of something that can really restrain the companion mechanic you know it's just an extra free card well not free but pretty much free card that you get to play with um so starting the game with eight cards is obviously quite ridiculous uh but maybe there's other ways we can address it so uh, i forgot to mention earlier but the heliod company decks have been coming back Um, You know, there's a couple of copies that have top aided challenges recently. So maybe just sort of, that seems to be a pretty good hammer matchup as well, have a pretty good hammer matchup as well. So just invalidating the Luris decks by playing something along those lines could be quite interesting. And that's a deck that obviously plays three or four mana spells that doesn't really care about having access to that kind of card. Um, But I don't know if if the metagame will evolve to a point where Luris is, is not relevant anymore, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be anytime soon.
0: Charlie, you wanted to do interject there?
3: Yeah, I just want to give my opinion
1: on Lurus uh, versus other cards that are up for debate in terms of potential bans. You know, I think uh, conversations around bandings can become very toxic very quickly, but, you know, something else like potentially Urza Saga, which is incredibly powerful, and you were seeing being played by almost every deck at the start of the introduction of Modern Horizons 2. You know, it was almost, uh, it was getting us all worried, right? We were thinking, wow, if even stuff like Jund is going out of its way to include this land, maybe we're going to have a a smuggler's copter situation on our hands, you know, where basically the format becomes homogenized. But in terms of Lurus, it's not really introducing any new archetypes. So I think banning it wouldn't be like a massive loss you're not going to be erasing any decks or you know hurting an invested modern player it's uh, more a matter of like restructuring existing decks so literally uh leaning out your john deck or playing shadow without uh, street wraith so it's it's more a matter of like being an incidental include than an interesting deck building option it's just like almost free value that you're getting like you guys both said
0: yeah i think and i think that's that's the thing right like you both said it magic is a game where you're meant to start you don't start the game with seven cards in hand and anthony and we discussed this when anthony first came on the podcast and i was completely against companion because i felt like it fundamentally broke a rule of magic why would you choose to start a game with seven cards in hand when you can choose choose to start the game with eight cards in hand? Luris, uh, for me, a companion is, is a, as a mechanic is a problem from the onset, and particularly in the older formats, your eternal formats. I think if you take a step back, like the problem problems, it's not just that it's a very good card and you start with eight cards in hand. It's the fact that it makes the graveyard relevant in matches where it ordinarily would not be. So all of a sudden, when I'm playing when I'm trying to fight, you're trying to beat hammer time. Now you have to worry about a graveyard. You shouldn't have to worry if you're worried about everything on board. That's you know, there's enough problems that it gives you. But because it presents this unique Lurus problem, often I've had this discussions. We Cal, we've had this discussion where I've said, "Oh, I need," and I'm saying, "Oh, I need to have the graveyard hate because it's no use me answering everything in the first five turns, and then turn six, turn seven, whatever. He gets Loris back, or they get Loris back." And they just beat me because I don't have graveyard I hate. So it gives decks this, I guess, this resiliency. This it's just cheat mode. It's magic in, in, in cheat mode. And yeah, it's like a, a free extra dimension
1: that it's now making your opponents having to spread themselves too thin, right? Just building on your
0: point. Yeah, yeah, and and, and like it, it's it it makes it very difficult to come back, combat, and interact with these sort of uh, game plans. I think Lurus is a problem. I think it needs to get rid of, I think if you get rid of Luris from from Hammer Time, it's still probably there and thereabouts, maybe the best deck thereabouts, but it's a lot more palatable. And I think you can, you know, suddenly if you don't have to worry about the graveyard, it, it definitely frees up some sideboards and allow, slots and allows you to combat the deck and put game plans together that obviously focuses um, on, on the situation on board, opposed to, you know, future graveyard uh, nonsense that may may arise. Um, so do you want to chip in
3: here? Yeah, just to add on what Cal and you both said, um, the, the graveyard aspect of those Hammer Time decks um, is quite annoying. So like you said, you often want to bring in graveyard hate or some removal in that aspect. So like citing a Nihil spell Spellbomb against Hammer Time is something you really don't want to do, but it's something that you feel that you absolutely have to, otherwise you're going to get buried later on um, in card advantage. But if you end up drawing the Nihil spell Spellbomb on turns, you know, two, three, four, it's a completely dead card. You know, it doesn't interact with the other aspects of their combo whatsoever. So, yeah, you are being stretched too thin, as Cal said. And then the other thing about Loris is that I find it interesting that it's taking over the format to this extent, or warping the format, if you want to put it that way. Even though most decks are playing multiple copies of things like Unholy Heat and Lightning Bolt, you know, obviously they're able to steer the the game in a particular way, and they'll only obviously expose it, you know, when they when they think they are relatively safe and able to take advantage of it. Um, but it seems like the answers that are in the format that should naturally be able to take care of this thing are not doing the job or, or, or what they're designed to do. So, you know, maybe maybe it should be banned if, if that's the case. Um, but I wonder if we may be also a bit biased in just seeing Lurus in a list and saying, okay, cool, this deck placed at 5-0 or it was in the top 8 of whatever channel simply because Lurus was in it. Obviously, it gives them access to the card, but we don't know how many of those games are actually not coming down to Lurus actually ever hitting the battlefield. So there may be something that... That we're not really taking into account there. Maybe the decks are just good enough on their own. And Luris, you know, forcing you to build your decks correctly and only play one and two mana spells, um, even though you don't actually ever put them into your hand or play them, uh, maybe that's just the way we should be building our decks, even if Luris is removed from the format in some way or another. You know, maybe three and four mana spells are best left for standard and pioneer and all these other formats, and you know, Modern needs to be as lean as possible.
2: Um, I think uh that Companion is a Hearthstone mechanic, (laughs) and it fits in Hearthstone, but in Magic, it's sort of out of its depth. Um, And you could see this from Lurrus in Modern, but even Yorian in Standard, I feel like it's too hard to actually punish someone for building their deck based on the Companion restriction, and that's what's supposed to balance the Companions, that there's some way to attack them based on that restriction on their deck. But in Modern, it's it's really not a big deal to only have cheap permanence. And in Standard, it's not a huge deal if you're playing a control deck to have 80 cards in your deck because the aggressive decks just aren't convincing or disruptive enough to punish you for that. Um, and so I don't know if we're going to spend much time talking about Standard, but you know, the, it's not a coincidence that the deck that's dominating Standard for like the past year also plays a companion and also doesn't seem to have to pay much for that.
0: Yeah, I think I think I, I think you make a good point. I think I think we're in agreement. I think generally everyone here is in agreement that a companion as a mechanic is flawed and probably, and has no place in magic. We want it out. Um, so you know, you should see a band uh, announcement next week. You know. because Kel has uh, has contacts uh, at uh, Direct Line to Wotsey. You know, being in the US, I mean, that's what it, that's what it's about, isn't it, Kel? You, you're friends with everyone who works at Wotsey, so you'll get this band done for us yeah i wish <laughs>
3: yeah i mean san diego is basically uh, in seattle right? it's just a short a short drive
0: a few minutes <laughs> you can just show up at the offices and get them to do what you want no but yeah, just... but uh, i think jokes aside I, I think that um like to the point and uh, it's all just it's nothing to do with how, how, are the decks good are they bad without loris whatever it's i mean it's just my experience as well and, I, and uh, it's you play these leagues your game patterns kind of repeat themselves um So people are taking decisions to build decks in certain ways to take advantage of this. And, you know, let's stall the game. Let's play these controlling elements or disruptive elements. Let's answer. Let's go. We're going to go one for one, one for one you. And then eventually I've got a Lurus. Your deck doesn't have Lurus. I'm going to win. That's just what's going to happen. And so that pattern, that monotonous pattern needs to be broken as far as I'm concerned um, to allow cool creative things, you know, like playing Street Raid in your Death Shadow, which, you know, uh, I did last. I did last week. I tried a four-one a bunch of times, but I felt really outgunned. I felt like I had a knife in a in a in a gunfight when my opponent had Luris, um and I didn't. So you know, uh, deck building um, shouldn't come down to well. This is just the most broken thing that you ha- absolutely have to do. This and it's very difficult to interact with. Um, so yeah, I think that's enough uh, on that. I know that there's one quick. Um, there's one quick uh, thing that Cal wanted to talk about, and that's these weird rhino decks, um, crashing footfalls, cascade, uh, cascading into crashing footfalls. Cal, um, the deck's done really well in the last two challenges. In fact, I think we've won the Saturday challenge and maybe was run it up in the Sunday challenge. And I find it very interesting because I feel like whenever I play against the the deck are in the leagues i usually beat it and i don't understand what's so good about it i feel like it's relatively easy to disrupt what's going on here
1: so i think probably you and Salvesh are better versed in modern and overall would be able to break it down in more detail but from my perspective i think it's just like a deck that's getting to do a lot of things at once so you're presenting an unfair element in the form of cascading into uh crashing footfalls which is that namesake card the rhino card and then simultaneously you're able to play uh, very strong um like card advantage engines such as jace and then stuff like Cryptic Mards is not a card advantage engine, but, you know, it's something you typically look to when you want to be playing a more controlling deck and deck that's looking to grind others out. So, yeah, you're getting to play those cards and then you're getting to play a bunch of free spells. So you're you're seeing them play Subtlety um, as well as Force of Negation and uh, Force of Vigors and Furies out of the sideboard. So you're really getting to do everything. And I see the list also has gemstone caverns so you, you're setting yourself up to have like a broken draw and a very good uh mid range slash controlling draw plus they're bringing in blood moon as like a trump card against some matchups so from my perspective i would say that you're just getting to play a bunch of very strong cards cheat on mana and play magic unfairly and fairly at the same time
0: yeah I- I, I don't understand it, and maybe I need to pick up the deck uh, uh, because, yeah, as I say, I, I seldom see it doing something really powerful that I think, oh, I, I really need to get on this. I really need to try it. So, yeah, maybe that's something I'll, I'll try in the next week or so is to uh, pick up some crashing footballs and, and try and do that. But it seems wrong in a format where you can cast Murktide Regent um, amongst other things That's and, and, and things like Hammer. So... Yeah, So, uh, one last thought on modern before we, we move on.
3: Yeah, I think Kel's point about it just being able to be so versatile is what really pushes it over the top. So it's vulnerable in some ways to the same things that Living End is with, you know, uh, Chalice of the Void and even engineered explosives, which is another aspect that opens itself up to in, you know, putting these zero CMC four mana rhinos into play. But it is also able to sidestep that as well. So if you end up bringing these these tools to the party, you know it's got things like brazen borrower, bone crusher giant, um, you know subtlety as well so it can also play that very fair game and just completely invalidate some of these other um, you know targeted headpieces pieces that you bring in. So I think that's what really, uh, you know, is is what's pushing it over the top. And also, you know, I've, I've lost a couple of games to it just when they've suspended a crashing footfall in turn one and it forced me to interact with other, you know, aspects of their game and also have access to these free spells that just seemingly uh, take people by surprise as well. And then you end up losing to eight with a power with trample, you know, uh, on turns five, six, seven. So, you know, it's it's just very diverse and versatile in, in that in that regard.
1: Yeah, sorry, Karan, I know you said last thought, but jeez, uh, I never thought about that, so Yeah, just like the alternate casting cast, as it were, of Crashing Footfalls is literally just suspend four on turn one, which is a very, very strong card. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's move on.
0: Yeah, limited all-star. All right, guys, so so Modern's great. I think to surmise, Modern's generally great. Lurus is a problem. Um, and play Hammer Time if you can. Um, If we're going to the challenge, if we're going on... uh, There's a standard uh, uh, arena open challenge. Is that what we call uh, call it, uh, Anthony? Um, Maybe tell us about what's happening on the streets of arena um, and in particular, the new standard format that has come on and what is it about? Can you tell us about this new format?
2: Well, see, here's the thing. I mean, if standard were in a good place right now, I'll be fighting you guys because you're talking about modern for the whole bloody podcast, but standard sucks, so... (laughs) I don't really care that much. Like I, I am plan- playing standard because I'm playing in a Dreamhack Invitational on Sunday evening and next weekend there's the Arena Open, um, which are both regular standard formats. But honestly, most people are playing standard 2022, which is the Arena format that lets you play post-rotation, uh, pre-rotation. Um, and that format's been really fun. Uh, it, it's clear that with Eldraine gone, that it does open up a lot more possibilities. But the actual standard format right now is just completely dominated and oppressed by the, the Sulzai control deck. Um, you play the Yoran, as I mentioned earlier. But I mean, I think that there's sort of three main factors that make the deck really oppressive. The one is that it's a... It, well, these are two factors combined, I suppose. It's a control deck, but it has a combo win. Um, so historically, usually control decks, especially in standard, one way you can beat them is by kind of... Uh, Just sort of grinding them out and eventually they run out of gas and you've you know you've sighted in your planeswalkers or something and you can get that value you don't win that way against this deck because eventually they cost emergent ultimatum and just win on the spot i mean it doesn't it's not like splinter twin doesn't literally win on the spot but the combinations are pretty good like they're always going to search for take another turn and then two cards that together can just win and then you don't want them to take another turn but you also don't want them to just win and so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place um so that's the awkward thing, is that it's a, a control deck that has a combo win. The combo win is just a one card combo. Um, you just need the other cards in your deck. Um, there's the fact that it gets to play Yorion pretty much for free. It doesn't really pay much uh, price for that. So sometimes it just plays by grinding out value by playing enchantments and then dumping a Yorion and getting extra value. And then the other thing that's often overlooked about this deck is that it really does get a lot of value out of Elder Gargaroth. Um, There isn't any other deck that gets that kind of value from this card because it's sort of like a one-man team that takes over a board that completely destroys aggro decks, but it's quite difficult to fight in this deck because the kinds of cards that beat Elder Gargaroth are totally dead against everything else in the Soul's deck. And so there's this awkward dynamic where they've got this one problem creature. You kind of feel like you have to have removal in your deck for, but it's really bad to play removal against them because mostly they're not playing creatures at all. So it's it's just an overall very frustrating deck to try and attack, and I don't actually personally think there's any deck in the entire stand format that has a favorable matchup against it. Um, the, the exciting new deck in standard is Mono Green, which got a lot better with two really powerful near two drops in the new set, but Mono Green's worst matchup is Sultai, which is already the best deck, and so it's kind of like, is there even a point in, in thinking about that?
0: it's 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 funny the parallels there between modern what we were talking about modern uh, and, and how i spoke about fighting Luris because similarly uh the cards that are good against fighting Luris are the graveyard cards and are completely hopeless against everything else in the in the hammer time deck so it's a, it's that same tension that that you find in the best deck i guess in modern and
2: in standard uh yeah absolutely i mean so i and I mean, I'm particularly frustrated as a player who likes to find aggressive strategies in most formats. Um, there are aggressive decks in standard. There's mono white, there's mono red, there's mono green. They're all like sort of viable strategies, but they all have pretty bad one drops, which means they start a turn late, which means in, in, unfortunately you hardly ever overrun the control decks. Um, you know, mono green would be really good if we still had Llanowelves and Pelt Collector like we had a couple years ago. Then, then I think that would be a deck that could maybe challenge the, the Sultai deck. But I, I, I feel like Watsia made a concerted effort to not give very powerful one-drops recently. And because of that, you're starting a turn late. And and I mean, of course, there's players who don't like aggro decks being dominant and being forced to like only think about aggro. And that's the reason that they've been worried about the the powerful one-drops. But we're on the flip side now where it sort of feels like it's just really hard to play against a good soul-side player. Um, and so it's been you know, quote-unquote testing for the upcoming events is quite a frustrating process because you find yourself trying all these different decks and ultimately coming back to the same conclusion that there's this one deck that's just better than the rest that's really difficult to beat. And if you don't feel comfortable playing it or don't enjoy playing it, then, you know, you're stuck in this decision of do you just accept that you're entering a tournament with, like, bad odds? Or do you force yourself to play the thing you don't like to play? Um, It's really quite annoying. I believe Savesh has a solution to fix Standard.
3: Uh, I think we should just print Brainstorm into Standard. Um, you know, it, it seems to be doing quite well in Historic. You know, uh, obviously it had to be banned so- for a reason. You know, it's too good. So maybe it would, it would. Uh, you know, I'm just talking complete nonsense. Uh, Brainstorm is probably the most ridiculous Magic card I've ever seen. Uh, so it really shouldn't see the light of day. And if they ever decide to print Brainstorm into Standard, I'm going to stop playing Magic.
1: I think I'd start playing standard if they did
3: that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I'd play it, but I'd be All right, boys. Uh,
0: So, so Anthony, you were were speaking about you've got uh, some dream dream hack uh, open that you're playing. Um, uh, Is is this one of the streaming events? Will you be streaming this event?
2: It's it's an invitational. uh, People have been invited to play, and you have to stream yourself playing. It's for $2,500 on Sunday evening um so that's i mean myself and a few people have sort of just like cracked out the standard cards again in preparation of that which is useful because the Reno open is the following week and so it's like a good time to place if you're gonna play two weeks of standard at any point in the season now's the time to do it um but yeah i will be streaming at twitch.tv slash when i'm playing the tournament i don't think i'll be allowed to interact with the chat i think one of the tournament rules is that you have to not read your chat while you're playing um but i'll still talk and stuff and you can follow my thought process and call me a noob afterwards if you want. Um, but but yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to try and dress it up. Standard's in, in, a, in a really bad place. The next standard format looks like it's going to be promising. I'm quite excited for Worlds, which we've told is going to be the next standard format plus the next draft format, which I think is going to be probably a killer event actually to watch. Uh, well, I think I can speak for everyone. We look
3: very forward to watching you stream. I'll try and catch as much of it as I can. Uh, I haven't played Standard recently, so I can't really add much to the discussion except to ask about Standard 2022 um, and whether or not you've actually played any of that. Do you think the Mono Green deck there is any good? I've heard that's been putting up some numbers recently. it been quite popular. Um, has it actually detracted from current Standard? I mean, do you think the, the numbers have already... People have moved away from Standard. It's a bit difficult to assess. I mean, we don't have raw stats and numbers about about how many people are playing arena and various formats on arena um but do you think that you know i mean it's a weird intermediate format do you think it should see more support from from wizards or do you think it's just sort of a flash in the pan just to appease people until current rotation do you think this will be the norm going forward you know where they'll try and and preempt rotation uh, by introducing it on, on magic arena a couple of months before before it's due, and it's not actually a true rotation, right? Because it's not including, the obviously, the new Innistrad set that would be coming out. So it's kind of this weird, like, bastard child format. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, uh, Standard 2022 has been great. I Again, I also don't have the exact data, but based on the streamers I watch and the people I follow on Twitter, I think that almost everyone is playing that as opposed to Normal Standard. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer, because Normal Standard is deadlocked with the Sultai deck, whereas Standard 2022 feels very open the mono green deck is a lot better there it's a lot more viable but there's there's tons of different strategies that you actually can try which can work um and they they're supported on arena in terms of you you can play ranked in standard 2022 and so you can get your rank up just by playing the post rotation format um it's just that these these tournaments aren't i mean i think that if the upcoming arena open allowed you to play standard 2022 you'd find that like a vast majority at least 80% of entrants would be playing standard 2022 Um, It's quite annoying, actually, that they're forcing you. It it feels almost counterintuitive. Everyone's been shifting to standard 2022, and then there's an event that's going to be just regular old standard. Um, That feels like maybe an oversight on the part of White Sea. But, I mean, there's an interesting question when you start thinking about this. Is the logical extension of people enjoying playing the rotated format before rotation that we just eventually start thinking about rotating sooner, um, having earlier rotations, And it's a question that came up, I think, in our last podcast. And I was saying about how, because of the advent of Arena, because of how quickly data is collected and how many reps get played and the information is is publicly shared, the formats just get solved a lot quicker and they get stale a lot quicker and people stop enjoying them a lot quicker. And so it might be that, uh, especially in terms of the digital game, we're headed towards a future where rotations come slightly sooner than what they have been recently.
1: So I have a couple of suggestions. And yeah, Anthony, what you're saying it's pretty ironic that like wizards had decided to accelerate rotation in order not to hurt people that have invested in standard right to have their cars just become totally useless and now you we find ourselves in a situation where nobody even wants to play standard so how does it make sense for them as a company to continue with this approach when nobody's buying their cards like their limit the newest limited set has got a lot of issues with it so people aren't going to be drafting that much and then it also hurts the people that are interested in limited who would typically be able to sell their cards and continue that churn right they'll sell their cards to the standard players standard players will keep playing so i think from my perspective i think the natural solution to all of this is uh reintroduce the accelerated acceler- uh, rotation and then potentially to answer uh the issue of formats being solved too quickly why don't we bring back block constructed
2: well block constructed is definitely an interesting uh idea um it's a very long time since I tried to play block constructed competitively it would obviously change the way they'd have to design their, their sets that's the only thing I'd I'd say there um, but, uh, the, the other point I wanted to make is that I think that it's possible. I mean, we talk about how people, people didn't like the idea of accelerated rotations back then, but I think it's possible that the introduction of historic might change that historic is really popular. I mean, we, we haven't talked about in this podcast. None of us are playing a lot of historic, but it's actually very popular in arena. People really love historic and it's a, a format that Wizards are taking very seriously with the bands and management. And i think that maybe slightly faster rotations you could still be protected by the cards you invest in if you can use them in historic which is very closely adjacent to the new standard prints.
0: go ahead Karim. i think guys i i think uh, there's a lot we can go into but i think we're well over time here i think we're like an hour hour 30 minutes already so i think we're gonna wrap it up that's all from us for this time Uh, We'll be back in uh, probably a week or two and we'll hear about Anthony's adventures and he's in the DreamHack event and uh, maybe the Standard Open if some of us play that as well. I know some of us have the super qualifiers coming up on uh, Magic Online, the MH2 super qualifier and the modern one. So lots of cool events that hopefully uh, we can uh, come back and report on some some successes. Um, So until next time, We're out.